Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Gear 30 on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. And if you are someone who has listened to at least five Gear 30 episodes, well, then you are clearly the sort of person who wants a podcast like this in your life, so we would ask you to take just 30 seconds of your time and show your support by leaving us a five-star rating in Apple Podcasts so that we can keep this thing going and growing. Plus, we are about to drop a whole lot more gear and design nerdery on your head, and I am quite confident that this is the type of information that you will not get anywhere else in this world. And the reason we do it is because we think this sort of information really matters and is really important, so we want to make it available to you. So if you agree, then take a minute to show us your support, and we promise to then keep doing what we do. See how that works? It's a good deal. Okay, on that note, today we are launching a new mini-series on Gear 30, where for the next handful of weeks, we are going to be talking to key designers and product people in the world of snow sports and bike helmet design to kind of stitch together a current state of helmet tech and helmet research and design, specifically as it relates to skiing and snowboarding and cycling. And to get things started, we are talking with Stola Müller, who is the co-founder and head hard goods designer of Sweet Protection, And the reason we're starting with Stola is because about five years ago, Stola proved in a conversation that we had that he really knows his stuff. So we will talk a bit more about the kind of premise for this state of the union in helmet tech with Stola. So for now, let's just go ahead and jump right in. Here we go. Well, Stola, how are you today and where are you today? Uh, I am doing very well, thank you. How are you? I'm <laughs> doing great. Uh, I'm in uh, I'm in uh, Trisil, uh, our head office, Trisil, Norway, uh, and just looking out on the on the mountain, which is green. Mountain biking has started, hmm. and the uh, water level in the river is really really good, and the sun is shining, so life is good. Excellent. Well, I appreciate you having this conversation. Now I know it is nearing the end of your workday there in Norway. I think it's the end of your workday. Maybe you're running longer hours these days than uh, than I'm aware of, though. Uh, yeah, running a little bit longer hours. Uh, it's the last month before summer holiday, so uh, we need to land some projects. Okay. <laughs> so, b- busy times. Busy times. Well, I appreciate you taking the time. As I was mentioning to you, I was recently talking with our bike editor and I was like, you know, I feel like we really need to kind of go back and kind of revisit this question of where helmets are at and helmet technology and, the, you know, just get kind of a current state of the union. And I was like, I think it's been two or three years since I talked to Stola and Rob and then we looked it up and it's like, no, it had been five years. So, uh, yes. <laughs> you know, time time continues to fly. And I'm very happy to be revisiting these topics with you. Uh, and I think we're overdue. You know, this is, this is good. It's good to reconnect. So to that end, perhaps you could just give us kind of a quick backstory 
ensuite protection, you know, when it was founded and how the company has evolved. Let's start there and then we'll dive into, you know, all the details of all things helmets. Sweet Protection was uh, founded by a group of friends who grew up together here in the, the mountain wilderness in Norway. We're kind of situated northeast of Oslo, close to the Swedish border. Uh, we grew up in a pretty isolated place. Back then, there was no internet. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, But we were kind of different in terms of what activities we decided to pursue. Our first love was skateboarding. We rented a VHS at the local burger joint, saw this movie Thrashing and Back to the Future, and that kind of got us started uh, into skateboarding because we were not really into cross-country skiing or soccer, which are the two main activities. Um, and uh, it was difficult because there was a um, complete ban on skateboarding in Norway. It was illegal. So um, we started making skateboards in uh, my parents' garage uh, and uh, built ramps in the forest <laughs> where no one could see us. <laughs> and then the ban was lifted in, um, in 89 so we could actually pursue skateboarding legally. <laughs> uh, and uh, in the winter, um, here in Trisil, it's the biggest ski resort in Norway. So we were always on the mountain skiing or snowboarding. Uh, and then uh, the closest we could get to the Pacific Surf was our local river, which had some really good rapids and waves. So we started whitewater kayaking. And then uh, in order to progress, we, we started making our own kayaks as well and started tinkering with gear. So we tried to solve problems by uh, tinkering with different kind of gear from ski, snowboard, whitewater kayaks, everything that could improve um, and uh, and make the activity more fun, basically. And then uh, out of this garage in 97, uh, we made the first helmet because we were not that comfortable with some of the performance and how things looked. And that's the Strutter, which is still in production. Yeah. That was the first. So that was kind of made here and there in the garage. And, and during that time, we were kind of traveling the world and, and meeting a lot of other kayakers and they kind of uh, so what we're doing, and uh, and then in 2000 we decided to 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 make gear full time. So that's when we established the company with the mission to make the best gear possible for uh, for the activities that we are interested in and have a lot of insight into. So it started out with um, kayaking and skiing and snowboarding. That's where we made the first helmets. I think it was launched in 2001. Uh, and then soon after, we started making apparel as well. Um, and then it's basically evolved. And uh, yeah, last year we celebrated 20th anniversary. And a lot of things has happened since. And uh, we got into bike and um, got involved into ski racing as well. And uh, it's, it's been an adventure. We're still trying to solve problems and making sure that we can always improve on the equipment. Uh, but we're a lot more people now and we're not selling out of the garage anymore. <laughs> yeah. Congratulations <laughs> for making it out of the Thank garage. You. Yeah. Hey, I don't <laughs> think I've ever asked you or perhaps I've just forgotten. Where did the name Sweet come from? Uh, we had the symbol that we put on the gear, which was the S. Yeah. And then I think back back then everything was so extremely extreme <laughs> in, in the in the late 90s and early 2000 
extreme sport was kind of uh, like a name people used for what we were doing. And we didn't really feel comfortable with this overly extreme uh, names for everything. Uh, and what really sums up sums up a really good day on the river or on the mountain or wherever you are. It's it's basically used the term sweet, like this was really sweet. And sweet means more than the taste and the feeling. It means that you're proficient at something as well. And we want to distance ourselves from this overly extreme, which we felt was kind of a little bit more from the outside. So it's it's the expression of a good day, basically. Sweet day. Yes. <laughs> Got it. Excellent. Great job on the backstory. Congratulations on the 20 years. Thank you. Since we were really drilling down on helmet tech back in 2016, I, I'm a bit curious how much your day-to-day role at Sweet has changed, you know, since we were talking five years ago and since you guys have continued to produce, you know, more and more product and product lines. Um. There hasn't been much change. Uh, I'm uh, I'm still doing the the same. We have a really uh, dedicated group of uh, designers, so uh, so we have a really really good crew working together uh, to develop all all these things. Uh, what's new is that we we started on eyewear, which is a pretty pretty new uh, part of the business, and that's been really exciting. Uh, and we had the same approach. Uh, we we started everything from scratch, and there was um, uh, a lot to learn. And the most exciting things has been developing our own lenses and our own lens technology. Uh, so everything in our eyewear is proprietary technology that we developed ourselves. So that was, uh, I guess, that's the the one of the biggest news since since last time. All right, let's dive into it. Diving into the world of helmets. I think where I want to get started is just having you give us a bit of a refresher on safety certifications. And so people kind of get a lay of that landscape. And related question, how much have safety certifications changed or evolved, perhaps, say, in the last five years? Um. There hasn't been a dramatic change in the requirements for the different safety certification. What has happened is that there's a lot more attention to rotational protection, uh, and we are working close with the MIPS in Sweden in order to to integrate and add protection for for rotational forces. And then uh, most of our helmets are certified both for the European norm and for the different North American norms as the uh, the actual um, standards are a little bit different, and what in general uh, the the Norwegian or the the European norms, uh, the helmets are tested at a slightly lower speed, and there's also a difference where the the head form from which you uh, put inside the helmets when you impact test them, uh, they are not fixed. They are kind of falling uh, free without being fixed to um, uh, to the the, the test uh, rig, whereas on the ASTM and CPSC the head form is more fixed, and then you impact them at slightly higher speeds and at different anvils as well. So that's the biggest difference. But when certifying and testing helmet, uh, what we try to pursue uh, on our 
premium models is that we um, want the helmet to meet both North American and European norm. And then you basically have uh, tested the helmets at different impact speeds at different animals and in different conditions. I'm really hoping I can get you to give a not diplomatic answer here. But I'm just <laughs> curious from a from a designer point of view and somebody who obviously you better be concerned about safety and like real world performance of the products you're, you know, selling to people and having them go out, you know, onto the rivers and onto trails and onto the mountains with which of those two tests if you could only pick one, which would you pick and why? Which I think would be, I guess what I'm trying to get at is, do you feel like one of the two tests is more effective? I, I understand how they're different. And in a way you could say different is good. And so your, your helmets are certified for both. But do you feel like one is actually a better way to test? I'm afraid... You might you might find this a little bit diplomatic <laughs> in my reply, but I think what what is important is that it is very difficult to plan a crash or an accident, yeah. and our, the the challenge for us when we design helmets is that uh, by integrating all these technology in a good way, uh, we want to make sure that we have good performance in in uh, different impact speeds and and uh, different conditions. So uh, it all. It's very difficult to answer because it basically uh, depends on the crash. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I think, uh, as I said, the challenge is if you have good performance throughout, then then uh, you have ultimately uh, a better helmet. First of all, I don't know. I guess I understand why there would be like, we want to see how well helmets hold up at low speed impacts and high speed but the fact that there's kind of the north american test and the european test as opposed to one test where it's like you got to pass the low speed and the high speed this is a confusing world that i don't really understand what what's good about having two tests is that you have different scenarios and uh and you do actually test at those different impact speeds what you can do while testing is Basically, try to to optimize your product to to perform under different conditions, which is a good thing. Okay, but that still doesn't answer the question. I mean, unless unless like I don't know how much say folks, whoever the you know kind of protectors and controllers of the European standard, how much back and forth they're having like if it so happens that there's a north american standard by the way the name of the north american standard is uh for ski and snowboard it's um astm 2040 and for bike it's it's the cpsc and then on the european side uh for bike the standard is called en 1078 and for ski and snowboard the standard is uh, en 1077 and there you have class A and class B, which um, which basically covers where you have a soft ear pad. It's a class B helmet. So the, the difference is basically in coverage and a little bit in the penetration test. And then for class A, which is a, a racing style helmet, which has uh, where the helmet shell covers the ears. Uh, and then a slightly stricter penetration test. 
uh, in the North American standard, there is no penetration test. But then what they have instead is uh, different anvils where they impact. Got it. The shape of the actual uh, anvil that you impact the, the, the helmet assembly onto. Okay, so you've laid out the landscape of these different certifications. You've also just told us that sort of the rotational forces has become a bigger thing, a more important thing. So how does the sort of testing of rotational impacts and rotational forces factor into the different certifications that you've just told us about? Well, it's, it's an additional thing that we do. Uh, it, it's a fairly uh, new discovery, what rotational forces can do to your brain in an impact. Uh, and uh, by working with MIPS, uh, we, we test the helmets uh, on a slanted uh, anvil, which basically means that you are impact the, impacting the helmet at an angle, uh, which is more similar the way you fall when you're doing an activity, you always impact at an angle or at speed. And what we can do there is that we can, um, we can see the reduction by implementing the, um, the MIPS system into our helmets. We can see the reduction of rotational forces on uh, the brain itself by measuring a rotational acceleration and rotational speed. Uh, and this is an important uh, addition to um, the helmet testing that we're doing, but it's not part of uh, the actual certification or or norm. Uh, and this is something that we've been focusing on a lot lately, trying to uh, implement this technology in a really good way into our helmets. Um, and we, we started off with, um, when we made the next generation of ski racing helmets, uh, we did a lot of this different testing and different implementation in order to maximize the travel and the performance in a very close fitting full coverage helmet. And that's where we ended up with the unique system to us where we have a three layer MIP system in our race helmets, which allows for um, uh, good travel, which means that the helmet will travel on your head instead of the head itself rotating in a very tight-fitting, full-coverage helmet. And we're continuing uh, to develop this technology, and um, this is something that we will uh, launch a new interpretation of this for a new series uh, of helmets coming this winter. Teaser there. Yes. Okay. It's been a very exciting project, huh. very much performance-driven. Huh. Um, okay, let's dive a bit deeper into just kind of sort of helmet tech and helmet R&D today. What I want to do here is just try to get a handle on maybe where some of the biggest advances have been made or what has really changed in terms of a number of different aspects of helmet design. So, why don't we go through these a bit? You've already spoken to some of them when we've talked about, you know, rotational forces. Let's maybe stay on this category for a second. Again, thinking about in the last five years, would you say that one of the biggest changes are just our understanding of the brain and understanding of brain injuries 
And I guess we would largely put this under the category of like, just our understanding of neurology has advanced quite a bit in the last five years, or it's like, nah, the bigger breakthroughs in neurology maybe happened a decade ago, not so much in the last five years. How, how would you see that or talk about that? I think in general, um, uh, I'm not a neurologist, uh, but I, uh, I'm, I'm really interested in, in, uh, trying to understand how, how we can protect for the, for different ways of impacts. And then looking into impact as a series of events, uh, even though we're talking an extremely small time slot where we operate in helmets, there it's only some milliseconds, but uh, focusing on both uh, rotational forces and the linear forces, which is the where you basically stop. That understanding has evolved quite a bit and and is getting more attention. And uh, we are now offering uh, MIPS either as standard or as option in all our uh, ski snowboard and bike helmets. And there seems to be a, a more interest um, in this technology as well. And that's basically what we've been focusing on um, for for the helmets that we are launching now is integrating this technology better into our products, making sure that the three main components of a helmets are working together even better uh, and making sure that uh, everything is more user-friendly and more comfortable because that's one of the most important things is that when you're really comfortable with your helmet, you're going to use it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so the three main components that we are working really hard to improve is first and foremost, our helmet shells, which is, which is the first line of defense. Uh, and, uh, when we started, uh, back in the days, the first helmet shells that we made was a, um, a carbon fiber polymer reinforced shell where we could have variable elasticity and rigidity throughout the, the surface of the shell so that we can have certain areas that were more elastic or more rigid depending on where on the geometry it was. And, and this is uh, something that we've been working on now for our new helmets is trying to make sure that we can optimize both the, the properties of the shell but as well the sh- shell uh, geometry and making sure that we don't make the helmets bigger, but improve the performance of the volume that we have decided to work with. And then um, the next important part of a helmet is the shock absorbing structure. And uh, this is where we uh, are able to really dial in different densities for different areas. Uh, like the forehead is has a uh, quite sharp radius on the side of the head. It is uh, very flat and uh, the bone structure is thin. And that's as well where you have the main blood supply to your brain as well, going both on the inside and the outside of, of uh, the bone there. And then you have different complex radius throughout the, the head. And that allows us to make sure that we can dial in uh, different densities for different areas to make sure we can optimize the performance. And then finally, uh, it's the inner layer where we add the low friction layer that deals with the rotational forces. And then integrating all this is in the, 
the best way possible uh, in order to make sure that all systems are working together. Yeah. I want to just circle back for a second when we're talking about the human skull and where the skull is thinner and thicker just to make sure that I'm tracking with you, that's where you're saying you guys are paying attention there and like trying to fortify, go thicker with the helmet, go stronger with the helmet in areas where the skull itself might be thinner. Is, is that right? Like yeah, it's first and foremost based on the geometry of the head. Geometry, okay. Because there, 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 are, there are some places of the head where you have kind of sharp corners. Yeah, that's a different scenario where we have a very flat area because they will travel through the shock absorbing uh, material and the shell will, um, will perform different in, in, in different areas. So let's say like the corner of your forehead, you can actually put your hand and, and, and grip your forehead. You can, you can actually feel that it's quite narrow compared to the back. It's a big difference in, in, in the, the shape of the head basically. So in the in uh, in the forehead, we wanna we have a technology which we call impact shields, where we have a higher density uh, part of the shock absorbing structure towards your head, which means that when you hit the corner of your forehead, you will um, be able to uh, distribute that impact through this impact shield, uh, thus controlling the the travel better on the lower density on the inside, and there's. Well, we have a more rigid shell because that's a point. Um, you're, you're kind of loading a point. So we want to dis- distribute and make sure that we, um, that we get a, a good distribution of the impact through that area. Where it's flat, you have more like um, you, you have a larger area that you need to compress. Thus, we have a different density in that area. And we make sure that the shell is a little bit more elastic it kind of smears out a little bit during an impact because the correct characteristics of the actual impact is different when you have a flat structure so to speak so it's that means that we try to keep our helmets as nimble and as light as possible but work with the different properties in different areas in order to uh, optimize the performance in in those areas this was one of the things that i thought was so interesting from our last conversation you know forever ago is if we're just going for the safest helmet out there, it would be quite large and just completely kind of um, cylindrical, right? Kind of alien looking and probably the sort of thing that absolutely none of us would actually want to wear, you know, on the trail or on the mountain. And so the, the series of kind of, compromises here and and the other big thing that you said is like the safest helmet is the one that a person will actually wear right because like if it's like yeah i don't like this helmet it's not comfortable or i think i look stupid in it so i'm gonna be more inclined to leave it at home not great so it's really an interesting and complex set of variables that you all have to work with here. And um, and you just made the comment, like you are not trying to increase the size of these helmets. And so you got to figure out the tricks to go about making a safe helmet that is ideally even lighter 
but not increasing in size or volume or weight because that might be the sort of thing that it inclines people to leave that helmet at home. Um, yeah, I, I think especially when you when you you do you go biking, you you go skiing, you you go whitewater kayaking, and 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 feeling really comfortable with your gear is is really important for the for the experience. And that's been the challenge now for the two VI series of helmets that we're we're launching for the coming winter is that we've. We managed to reduce the mass. We made them lighter, and uh, and uh, we made them more comfortable. Um, and we haven't increased the the size of the helmet. And uh, as I said, the, those those three main components: shell, shock absorbing structure, and um, the MIPS system is where we continue to improve and evolve and and come up with uh, new solutions in order to make sure that we have the the best possible combination. So if you're not increasing mass and you're reducing the weight and you're producing as safe as, or perhaps even a more safe end helmet, how do we think about, I mean, we've talked about shape a little bit. Is it the material advances here that have allowed you to do this? How would you characterize how you've gotten to that kind of remarkable end goal? Right. Given what we just said is like bigger helmets are safer generally. It is advancement in materials and how we combine the materials. It's, it has a lot to do with actually how you can bind really good materials to get the max out of, of the different properties. We have worked with the carbon fiber and carbon fiber is it's a really nice material to work with because depending on the direction and the layup of the fibers, you can really optimize um, the performance you're looking for by laying up everything uh, the way you want, basically. And there are as well new uh, resins and, uh, and fibers that you can use in order to, to, to get a little bit more out of either rigidity or elasticity in, in, in some of the ways. So let's say in the Velata World Cup carbon ski racing helmet, we're combining nylon and carbon fiber to get that ideal mix of rigidity and elasticity. And we also do a combination of, of carbon fiber with thermoplast, uh, thermoplastic material in, in some of our helmets as well, where we can laminate those two together and get a, a good combination of that elasticity and rigidity. But we have as well managed to, for the shock absorbing structure, we are still using uh, EPS, which is a very good material, but we can uh, in-mold different densities in a new way so that the, the whole structure in the end is molded into to one single unit so there are different things that we do in order to improve uh, on our products so one is material the other is new ways of putting things together basically and then what we have done for the new mips system um, in uh, the two vi helmets is that we have combined two different mips technologies so there's uh, basically two two parts um, which is a very good implementation for our products, where we have um, a low friction layer in the back, and then we have laminated um, the low friction layer onto the padding itself in the front area so that you don't have any fixation points, you don't have any Velcro bits, and you get a smoother and more comfortable way of implementing it. Um, and uh, you have a... Uh, you have as well by in 
instead of one layer, you have two layers. You have a less risk of geometrical lock when you test for rotational impacts. So there are all small evolutions and revolutions within all these components in order to make sure that we have um, a really good product. What is the name of the new system? Uh, We call this uh, 2VI, V-N-I. So it's a combination of um, the two-layer MIP system. It's the variable elasticity shell. And then it's the multi-density liner with the impact shields. And that's going to be introduced into both bike and snow? Uh, We are now introducing it into snow helmets for this coming season uh, in uh, three models. And uh, yeah, we'll see what the future brings. (laughs) He's got quite a... Quite a sly little smile on his face, ladies and gentlemen. Um, okay. Well, speaking of snow versus bike helmets, I think I asked you this last time, but I'll, I want to ask you again, which is the easiest category of helmets to build for and which is the hardest among all these different... So we were talking about ski racing. We've got backcountry skiing. We've got road cycling. We've got mountain biking we've got you know dedicated dh downhill riding with full face helmets so thinking of the entire spectrum where when you're doing your job on the day-to-day you think okay i'm kind of at the easier part of the of my job and then when are you like okay this is this is why i get paid the big bucks (laughs) well i have to say that each and every project is super exciting in itself and what I really like about building specialized helmets for specialized activities is, is that there are like a, a set of challenges for, for each uh, segment and for each sport, basically. So when, when making a ski racing helmet, uh, there's, there's like a, a unique set of challenges that you have to overcome. Like one is the actual position you're skiing in. The other thing is that you're, you're traveling at incredible speeds. And then you have all these norms and standards that you have to, to relate to. But, but you as well want to make sure that you have a really comfortable and, of course, as a low-volume product as possible. But, but you deal with a very special set of circumstances and challenges. But then again, for, let's say, a kid's bike helmet, that becomes very exciting as well. Uh, because then you have a, a different... The, the, the head shape is a little bit different. And then you're dealing with a, with a head that's a little bit more elastic and, and kids are, um, uh, they're not fully grown so that there are challenges in terms of understanding exactly what you're going to protect. And that's where we can work on the volume, reduce the density a little bit, making sure that it's, um, it's adapted to that. And then we have to look into how kids are kind of treating their gear and, and making sure that you can easily fit and adjust the helmet and it's easy to put on and all those things. And then as, as another completely different thing is when, we developed the, the Arbitrator convertible full-face helmets. That's what we really have to decide. What, what's the riding evolving into? What's actually happening now with the, the advanced full-suspension bikes and 160, 70 millimeters of travel? And how are people actually riding? And, and what problems are we needing to solve here? And what, what should we kind of make a priority? What do they need more of? And what... Uh, what can't we really uh, cater to in circumstances like that? Uh, so I, I would say 
we make them all difficult. Uh, and and every every project has its own set of uh, really difficult difficult problems to solve. Uh, and they're all extremely exciting. <laughs> got it. Okay. So what you just said is no no off days for you. You got you have to bring it every day. Uh, yes, yes, we do, <laughs> uh, and that's what makes it fun. Okay. Okay. And then whitewater is another set of really different challenges because everything is wet for a long time. Let's talk and about that for it, a minute. What what does that so everything is wet? What challenge does that introduce? It means that we we have to make sure that the helmet performs uh, even after it's been submerged for a long time, uh, and um, and it's really hard wearing. Um, so there's um, and then there's uh, as well trying to adapt the the protective gear to how people are actually performing the the sport so there's um there's a there's a unique set of challenges in order to develop really good white water helmets um because you have the the force of the water you have the you have to use different materials uh because it's it's tested after being submerged for a long time make sure that everything perform and uh, and also the hard wearing nature of of whitewater kayaking. I was just uh, was just watching this past weekend the Ob Joyful races here in Crested Butte, and watching all these psychos, you know, sending the twenty three foot waterfall. Where if you go too far to your right, you will probably break your back or both of your ankles. And um, I will say one. It's sure by the vast majority, like I'd say 90 to 95% of folks were wearing sweet helmets. So it seems like sweet still has a very solid position, uh, you know, in terms of market share in the kayaking world. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, you know, watching psychopaths go do crazy things. <laughs> it's like, well, I guess if that's what they're wearing, it's, it's not the worst endorsement in the world. <laughs> <laughs> just a little anecdotal you know note there um yes. back on course that was a fun interlude i want to ask you about ventilation because this is also something that um a lot of people want it right they want we want our highly ventilated helmets and yet this is also something that can come at the cost of like straight up safety and impact protection. So talk to me a little bit about how you guys are thinking about ventilation today. Uh, yeah, ventilation is a very interesting subject and it's, it's very difficult to, uh, to deal with. And then there's, again, ventilation for skiing is very different to requirements for biking and so on and so forth. Uh, only thing is that you really don't need ventilation for whitewater kayaking. You mm. can just roll if you're too hot, basically. Right. <laughs> But um, <clears throat> the way to deal with ventilation is that we have to make sure that uh, we have the correct direction and size of the vents to make sure that you don't um, uh, weaken the shell or the helmet integrity. Um, and uh, let's say for, for, um, for snow, uh, there is a, a penetration test that you have to pass. 
Um, and what we do there is that uh, on our snow helmets, it's either a small vent, and then you have to be very careful where you place it. It has to, uh, it has to make purpose. So then trying to make the um, uh, ideal flow of, of air from the, from the front of the helmet to the back, and as well making sure that you have ventilation for your goggles. Uh, and on a lot of our snow helmets, we as well have a penetration barrier on the vents. Then we can make them larger and, um, and then integrate those into the shell to make sure that they uh, are uh, an integral part of the helmet shell, basically. On bike, the direction and the efficiency are extremely important. And there we have another challenge as well, is that on bike, um, aerodynamics is important as well. So uh, on our premium bike helmet models, we've been doing um, a lot of wind tunnel testing, trying to understand how we can create ventilation without uh, uh, creating drag. And that's really uh, interesting because you need to make sure that you have a really good airflow, uh, but in the right places, um, and as well, uh, really understand how the air flows uh, over the helmet um, without causing any separation or turbulence in, in the wrong areas. So basically, it's where you place them and the direction they have towards internal channels. Uh, and what we figured out um, is that um, we have a, a set of special vents that we have on a lot of our helmets where we understood that if we can... There are some areas on the head where you can cool more efficiently than others. And that's where you have the superficial temporal arteries going on the outside of the, the skull, basically. So we can, uh, and it's an area where you really want to protect as well. Uh, so having, so we have some, uh, we have big inlets in the front and um, and uh, outlets in the back with cooling channels across that area, uh, without having to ex expose the area itself. And that's where you can very efficiently cool down the head when you're doing high activity sports. And then we had another challenge with our uh, Ascender helmet, which is triple certified. It's certified both for U.S. ski and snowboard norm, the European ski and snowboard norm, and as well the European mountaineering standard. And that's uh, a kind of a activity where you have a really high pulse because you're, it's meant for climbing. And, and that's an area where you have to make sure you have a really comfortable helmet because you're really exposed when going up as well as when skiing down. Uh, and all the hot air, especially when you're not traveling at, at big speeds, like you're doing when you're climbing, goes on over the top of your head. So we wanted to perforate the whole top of the helmet shell, but that's as well where there are really strict requirements for penetration in case someone drops some gear, or if there's ice or small rocks and so on. So that was a big challenge then to make sure that we put the channels where the air or the, the vents where the air evacuates. I think we put in 104 small vents there and can deal with the, the, the different requirements for three different standards. So that was the challenge. I got exhausted just listening to you talk <laughs> about that and finding myself. I often say, like, I'm really glad I'm not a ski boot designer, but I'm really... That must be a challenge as well. Yeah. That looks extremely exciting. <laughs> Exciting. I, exhausting is the word that I would use uh, rather than exciting. And that's that's exactly how I felt as you were describing the challenges of uh, the triple certification. It's like, make yeah, it, make it, it was... really safe, but make it really ventilated. Okay. Okay. Thanks. 
Yeah, that's 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 uh, that's what keeps us busy. It's it's <laughs> all these different sets of requirements, and I think bike with aerodynamics has been uh, an incredibly exciting area for us as well, and and still things that we can uh, that we can do. So correct me if I'm wrong, but when talking about ventilation and aerodynamics, it seems on the surface it would be obvious that like road cyclists are going to care far more about that than say mountain bikers. Like one, do you accept that as true? Yes. Yep. Because they're, they're traveling at higher speeds and, and uh, usually the duration of a road bike trip is longer than a mountain bike trip as well. So any, any kind of advantage you can get sort of gets multiplied. Yes. Yep. So, okay, back to when I'm like, oh, good, I get to go in into work today, and thank God I don't have to work on road bike helmets, where I have to make <laughs> them both highly ventilated and really aerodynamic. Do you feel like that frees you up a bit when you're coming to, say, designing a trail helmet, where it's like, I mean, again, you've already said, okay, that's a different set of concerns and factors, but there you're like, all right, we get to worry less today about aerodynamics we still want highly ventilated and pretty light and protective yes uh and and then trying to because we started out with ski and snowboard helmets uh and then uh adapt um the key principles or the key findings to a mountain bike helmet is extremely challenging because uh weight is extremely important and ventilation, um, and you have to manage sweat and all like the, the higher temperature. Uh, and in order to meet the the expectations in terms of weight, you have to work on different materials. So how ca- how can you get the same out of the the helmet shell by using completely different materials in order to to achieve that low weight and, and ventilation? Ventilation is quite challenging on the mountain bike helmet due to the fact that you want to have larger coverage as well. There's a larger area of the head that needs to be covered. And uh, you have to think of the integration of how your eyewear uh, should work with the helmet as well. Um, and you're not, you don't have to follow the same very strict kind of rules for road biking, but there are some, there are some really exciting challenges for, for mountain bike helmets as well. But aerodynamics is not that of an important factor. Let's go a little deeper here on the mountain bike helmet thing. Talk to us a little bit about the best-selling trail helmet that you make. So kind of the, well, I'll let you decide whether if if the best-selling is also what you would regard as your best, but like let's drill down a bit in terms of your best trail helmet depending on how you want to interpret the word best, I guess. Uh, with the, our, we have uh, our Trailblazer and Trailblazer MIPS uh, is our latest trail uh, helmet. And, um, and it has a quite modern approach and it has lent some of the features or design principles from our Arbitrator convertible helmet. Um, and... Um, what it does is that it, it, it features our um, uh, variable shell 
elasticity. And the way we do that with bike helmets is that we are using um, in-mold technology where we have a polycarbonate in-molded shell. And the Trailblazer features our uh, four-piece shell where we have different uh, thicknesses uh, in different areas in order to achieve that variation of rigidity and elasticity. Uh, it's very easy to, to see on the, on the helmet. So basically the, the thicker shells will cover, will cover all the, um, the sharper corners of the head. And where it's flatter, you have more of the, um, uh, the thinner, more elastic uh, shell. And it really, has really, really good ventilation. It has very um, well-placed visor, which is uh, um, higher, more progressive uh, styling and very easy to, to move up and down in order to park your eyewear. Uh, but what's really nice about um, the Trailblazer is that it has really good ventilation and it, it has um, the stack vents, uh, which are for the cooling the sides of the head, with really nice uh, large channels inside with huge intake and, and uh, outlet ports in the back. And then it covers the head and we have as well a, a newly developed uh, 360 fit system. So it's very stable and uh and uh very comfortable and sits really uh, really stable on the head um while biking so that's a very popular model from us a lot going on there which makes me want to ask the question and you are not allowed to say all of them i'm curious if the trailblazer or if you would say it's a different helmet that for some subjective could be very subjective, very personal reason of yours. You kind of look at sort of with the most amount of pride where, you know, as a designer, you're like, man, the fact that we pulled all of this off, I, and I know you're going to say like, we're, we, we quite like all the products that we're putting out onto the market. We stand behind <laughs> them and the rest, right? But I'm curious from a designer point of view, because look, a lot of us, we go look at helmets and they all look pretty much the same right? You, though, from the stuff that you guys have made where you're like, this is the one that I would single out. It's like, what we've pulled off here is pretty special. Uh, there, there's a lot of products that we have made. <laughs> right. I told, you, I told you you're not allowed to say that. <laughs> no, but I, I can't pick only one. But uh, there, there's one, uh, one helmet, which I haven't designed myself, uh, huh. which I'm really proud of. I think the Falconer road bike helmet uh, is a very unique approach to a road bike helmet. And it just has a very strong and unique identity in the segment we're very new to. And it has kind of been embraced by a lot of road bikers. Um, and it addresses some of the challenges in a very unique way from uh, uh, aerodynamics to, to ventilation. And... Uh, I'm really happy with the Trailblazer as well. It's a very modern take on a on a mountain bike helmet, which is another helmet that I haven't designed myself. Yeah, and I, I'm still happy going kayaking in the Strutter, uh -huh. which was our very first product. It's another one which has a very strong identity and is pretty pretty well known product and has been on the market for more than twenty years. Yeah. Okay. That's a pretty good answer. My whole this whole conversation has turned into me trying to get you to give less diplomatic answers. So that's fun. <laughs> um, one other thing I wanted to ask you about, we haven't really talked about it too much yet, is durability, right? And that 
be taken in a lot of different ways. I suppose it gets related to the question of like multi-impact helmets, which I think you and I talked a bit about like five years ago. But how are you guys thinking about durability today? And I'll just let you go wherever you like with that question. Now, our take is that um, we always recommend that you replace um, a helmet after a proper impact um, because basically the helmets work in a way where you have the shock absorbing structure. It's like, um, it's like a shock absorber on your bike uh, um, that doesn't have a spring. It doesn't return. It basically compresses. You destroy the helmet, and that's how you manage the energy on an impact. So we always uh, recommend people to replace their helmets after a, a proper impact. And um, I think the question with multi-impact is is difficult because there's there could be circumstances where your helmet could deal with another impact. Uh, but as long as there's no way to actually monitor what happens in that impact, uh, it's it's uh, something that that we don't have a very good solution to. Uh, and we don't use materials that recovers because the materials that we use are extremely efficient um, for absorbing impacts. But as I said, they don't recover. It's uh, a very good shock absorber with no spring. Uh, and that's the best way to deal with impacts anyway. We might use the example, and correct me if you don't like this analogy, but like a crumple zone on a car? Yes. Okay. You accept that's that. basically what happens but i think what's important as well and why it's important to replace your helmet is that uh the, the damage to your helmet might not really be uh evident because there's a lot of things going on between the shell and the shock absorbing liner there's uh, there's not much deformation inside the the helmet where you put your head itself because um it, you really need to make sure that it fits really well in order to protect you so ideally the deformation doesn't happen there. So, um, so since it's very difficult to monitor, uh, we always recommend uh, our customers to replace their helmets. And that's why we as well now have a helmet replacement uh, program. Say more about that. You have, uh, after, uh, uh, you have had an, uh, an impact on your helmet, uh, then you can contact us for, for a helmet replacement. A discounted new helmet or a different part or? At, at a discount. At a discount. Okay. One other thing you've said, you used the phrase a couple times after a quote unquote proper impact. Yes. What the hell is a proper impact? That's when, when you crash skiing or, or biking, like a, a small bump on your helmet might not be severe enough, but it's actually when you're wearing the helmet and crashing and hitting your head. That's when you have a, had a had an impact. A proper impact. So, and again, though, that you might be able to inspect the helmet after a crash where you've hit your head, you might not be able to see any visible damage. But you're still no. saying, even if you haven't seen visible damage, if you've, you've hit your head, I guess we'll say pretty hard, that's when you're saying, get that helmet replaced. Yes. Okay. Proper impact. <laughs> All right. I, I do think this is a really important point because, look, a lot of us do crash, including myself, and we don't 
love the idea of like, oh, cool, I'll just, you know, go get a new helmet right now. I think most of us, prob- probably the vast majority of us, do that thing where it's like, okay, well, I see some scrapes on the helmet or something, but we're not like, ex- I mean, helmets aren't cheap, right? So we're not thrilled with the idea to like quickly run out and replace these things. And yet you're just saying like, Hey, as the designer and as somebody whose job it is to care about the safety and the efficacy of these helmets, I'm just telling you, you know, what's, what's actually up. No, it is incredibly important. And, uh, and, um, it is as well important to make sure that you make sure that you're, uh, helmet is is uh, that there's nothing torn or or worn or uh, there are any problems with your with your helmet and it, it is a, a very important piece of uh, equipment and um, in addition we we always recommend as well that um, that the helmet is should be replaced after it's too old because it's been exposed to a lot of uh, sunlight and and um, oil and 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 so on and so forth. So that that's an, another important thing as well. So you should always treat your helmet with care. So keep it out of the sunlight. Do not expose it to heat, uh, and store it dry and 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 dark and cool, basically. And then it should last for a long time. But again, if it's more than three years old and you're an active user, I would recommend you to to make sure to replace your helmet every now and again. You're saying three-ish years depending on use yeah but yes okay that's what we recommend okay all right i think we might be at my last question which i'm gonna call the anything else question what haven't we touched on yet in this conversation that we ought to before i uh before i let you go um well i think we we are basically now trying to make sure that every new product is better than and than its predecessor and uh, another thing that we've um, started working on is uh, sustainability and see how how efficient we can make our products. Um, and that's a new, another uh, exciting challenge uh, where we're kind of looking into experimenting with new materials and see how they're performing. Uh, and, uh, of course, like I said, with everything that we do, performance is the most important thing. And then and now trying to experiment um, uh, with new, uh, more uh, environmental efficient materials, I think is a very exciting challenge. We're not there yet, but we are, uh, but we are working on it. And then I think that's going to be a, an ex- exciting challenge for the future. If you had to place a bet, where do you think, where does it seem to you like, where the most likely place would be to to find that sort of improvement in terms of sustainability and materials. Like if we're talking about some of the lining of a helmet versus the hard shell of a helmet, any, any guesses I, there? We're actually looking into everything and see where we can find better options. Um, and the, the, the challenge is, has been to to find these materials without compromising performance. Uh, so that's, uh, that's basically where we are, but there are, there are, um, there are, um, uh, textiles and polymers and, and fibers and, and, uh, even shock absorbing structures that, that, uh, are, are, are exciting to look into. 
Interesting. Well, Stola, I got to let you get going. You got a lot of stuff to still figure out. Well, there's still sunlight here <laughs> and the water level is really good. So before I start working on projects again, I'm, I'm actually planning to go kayaking. Excellent. I like this. That's a perfect answer. Um, well, listen, uh, it's really fun to kind of revisit this territory with you again. And, uh, you know, we're going to have some more conversations in these series. And the hope is just to, you know, let people listen to the collection of some different folks working on helmets and helmets designs and how to make everything safer than it's ever been. And um, yeah, uh, it's it's always always really fun and always really educational to kind of get your own take on these things. So I very much appreciate it. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Excellent. Well, hey, happy boating and uh, we'll talk to you (laughs) soon. Okay. Thank you very much. All right, everybody. It is time for our weekly What We're Celebrating This Week segment. And this week, I am celebrating being back on the bike. Now, as some of you know, I had a fairly significant, actually a quite violent crash on a bike uh, that was actually going to be three weeks ago, come tomorrow, it'll be three weeks. I was doing nothing cool, but I managed to do something very violent while doing nothing cool, which is like the worst of both worlds. But anyway, yesterday I was back on the bike just doing a very easy kind of pedal um, on hard pack. Rode my bike out to Gothic, which is a beautiful zone out here in Crested Butte. And, uh, you know, the four broken ribs, those are healing up pretty well. That separated shoulder, mm, feeling okay. Not not amazing yet, but uh, good enough to be back on the bike pedaling. And uh, as I'm sure all of you know who have had to kind of do these, you know, the rehab and recovery game after an injury. Um, it's just really nice when you can start seeing that tangible progress, even if it's incremental. So yeah, here's to being back on the bike. Here is to baby steps and incremental progress. And here's to having been able to reduce the kind of, uh, you know, the prescribed painkillers and drugs enough that, uh, I am going to be enjoying a nice glass tonight. Let's see. I'm going to go with Whistlepig 12 tonight. No ice, just neat, probably with a friend or two. Yeah, psyched to be back and uh, and riding again. Okay, and that then brings us to the end of this episode of Gear 30. I want to say thanks to Stola for the conversation. Thanks to the strikingly handsome Justin Bob for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. From all of us here in Gunnison and Crested Butte, Colorado, please take good care of yourself and everybody else, and we will talk to you again real soon.